Um, so happy to be here. I've been so blessed this morning uh, through all the worship experiences. It was so great to hear a prelude. I'm looking forward to the postlude as well. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts of church. Back in the day, it was my favorite part of church because I knew it was the end of church. But, uh, <clears throat> but we had this organist. Her name was Alicia Richards, and um, she would just play the most masterful postludes that that felt like the sky had opened up and we were we were peering into heaven. And so, uh, most people don't know this about me, but I can be I can be quite the liturgical. Uh, worshiper, you know, I love responsive readings and I love hymns, I love the organ. Um, um, but I, I've been kind of always typecast as a young adult youth speaker, and so I've, I've grown to appreciate all the other music as well and learning how to worship God in other ways. But there are times when I'm in these worship settings that just feel like home. And so um, I'm, I'm grateful for that. In my, in my church that I pastored for almost 12 years in Oakland, we did something that is very difficult to do. We attempted to um, have a blended service. So we started every service with a prelude, and we had our opening hymn. Um, we had a responsive reading and children's story. And then right in the middle of the service, we had praise songs and gospel songs and um, and then we would close out with a closing hymn and, um, and a postlude. And so we did it. We worked our church. It wasn't black. It wasn't white. It wasn't young. It was old. It was everybody. Everybody coming together and everybody worshiping. And, and it's hard to do that. I know it is. I, I tried it, we tried to do it at PUC, and it's just difficult. It's a really difficult thing. But in my church in Oakland, the Grand Advent Church, we were able to do that for, for over a decade, and I just loved that worship experience because I got a little bit of everything every single Sabbath. My, my hymn, my gospel song, my praise song, I got everything. So, but this is a beautiful church, and I'm so grateful to be here with you this weekend. I know most of you were not here Thursday night and Friday night because you don't love the Lord enough. I don't know why exactly. Well, that's between you and Jesus. Um, but I've just loved my experience. I want to thank uh, Pastor Bernie for just opening up his, his, his church. I know he's, he's one of the pastors here. I've yet to meet the senior pastor, but I know uh, but th- for opening up the pulpit for me to be here and, and uh, all that he did to make this happen, all the traveling arrangements and stuff like that. I love Florida. Like I have like this secret like flame of for Florida. Love it, love it, love it. I know it gets more humid than it is right now. I, I understand that, but it just, ugh. I was out here in Tampa um, last year around the same time and loved my experience. I always love coming back to Florida. So, but let's get into the word of God. Um, as I have already shared, um, this, is, um, this is not the same sermon from last service or the service before. I've done, I've done all, all, all three sermons today are all different. And so if you want to be a part of the entire conversation that we've had starting Thursday night, you can go online and you can listen to what we've been discussing. Listen, I know that there are things that I will say from up here that are going to hit you a certain way. They're going to challenge you and you're going to start to wonder, wait a second, I haven't heard this before. Where is this coming from? And I understand there's a, there's a guard here that wants to protect the truth. I get that. But you need to understand something. Present truth is present. I should probably say that again. (laughs) Present truth is present. Sister White was adamant about this. She says we must improve on the light in our day as our parents improved on the light in their day. She says, we must never become satisfied with what we have learned in the past and expect or assume that that is all the truth. The Advent movement was all about present truth, that God was unfolding and sharing more and more and more. And I know that, again, there's a, there's a, there's a segment in our church that will not believe what the preacher says unless Auntie Ellen has said it as well. So I have a quote for you. Is that okay? This quote is actually taken from the 
from, the, from a chapter that will be on the text that we'll be preaching from, that we'll be having our conversation from today. But I want to start it off this way, just in case, again, some of you are, again, a little bit on edge. You were here maybe the service before, and, you know, you're trying to figure out if you're going to throw your hymnal at me or not. But here's, here's, the, here's the quote. It's from, it's from Christ's Object Lessons, and this chapter is powerful. It's from Christ's Object Lessons, page 127. In every age, there is a new development of truth. In every age. A message of God to the people of that generation. Did you hear that? In every age, there is a new development of truth. A message of God to the people of that generation. The old truths are all essential. Thank you. We needed to know that, right? New truth is not independent of the old. Needed to know that as well. It's not independent of the old, but rather an unfolding of it. Oh, new truth is an unfolding of old truth. That's like when Jesus says, you have heard in the past, do not commit adultery, but I tell you this, do not lust. That's an unfolding of the commandment of not committing adultery. You've heard in the past, do not murder, but I tell you this, do not even hate your brother. That is an unfolding of old truth. She says, she says it is only as the old truths are understood that we can comprehend the new. When Christ desired to open to his disciples the truth of his resurrection, he began at Moses and all the prophets and expounded unto them and all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's taken from Luke 24, verse 27. But in the light, but it is the light, it is the light which shines in the fresh unfolding of truth. It is the light that shines, which shines in the fresh unfolding of truth that glorifies the old. He who rejects or neglects the new does not really possess the old. For him, it loses its vital power and becomes but a lifeless form. Did you hear that? So that beautiful quote from Monty Allen will set the platform what we will share today. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the invitation to be in your presence and to come to know you better. Father, we are a people of present truth, and we want you to unfold what we have learned in the past. Shed greater light on this topic. Not light that will cancel out old light, but new light that will make the old that much more luminous. Help us to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 25, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 25. Jesus has just finished sharing with his disciples the signs of the times, as we talked about last service. They asked him when would be the destruction of the Jerusalem, when would be the end of the age, when would be the sign of his coming, and Jesus is going down, giving them specificity. He's telling them exactly what signs they would see before the destruction of Jerusalem. He's telling them exactly when would be the end of their age, not our age, but their age. You have to read the context of this chapter. I know we often think Christ is talking about our age, our last days, but he's talking about theirs. But he then begins to talk about when would be his coming. When it came to the specificity of the destruction of Jerusalem, Christ was right on. He says, when you see this, you see this, you see this, you'll know it's time to flee the city and run to the hills. And sure enough, Auntie Ellen says that every single person that heeded the warning warning of Christ, not one of them perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. Isn't that a good word? Anyone who who took heed to the the words of Christ, who followed his instructions, they left when they saw the signs, and not one of them perished. 
But then Christ deals with this part of their questions, right? When is the end of this age? When will be the destruction of Jerusalem? Sister White says that Jesus kind of combined the, uh, their last days with our last days in mercy because they would not have understood the, 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 the long time gap between the destruction of Jerusalem and Christ's soon return. So Christ then says, after the specificity of the destruction of Jerusalem, he says, now for the time when I will return, he says, no one knows the day nor the hour. Right? Everything is very specific up to this point, and he says, that time, nobody knows. People will be eating, people will be drinking, people will be doing this, blah, blah, blah. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour. Not even me. It's with this backdrop that Jesus shares this parable. It is Matthew 25, starting with verse 1. It says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish. In the Greek, the word is moros, which is where we get the word morons. Five, that's not a deep, huh? Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. Well, why did they do that? Why did they not take any extra oil with them? Why? The reason why they didn't do it is because they had the wedding invitation. They knew when the bridegroom was supposed to show up. They could tell by their new package of Duracell batteries that's all they were going to need for their flashlights. So there was no sense in wasting oil, extra oil. Why do that when we know when the bridegroom is showing up? Makes no sense. This is the kind of people I like to call exact and precise Christians. They're the ones that ask the question, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Did you catch that key word? Must. I don't want to do anything extra. Just tell me what I have to do in order to get in. I said in the last service that, 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 that we as, 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 as Adventists, Seventh-day Adventist Christians, that we have, are a very dysfunctional group. And part of the reason why we're so dysfunctional is because we have this interesting um, dichotomy. We have this contradiction of sorts. We have this really distorted view of law and grace. You want to see how it works? You're going to be a part of an experiment right now. Would I be saved because I keep the Sabbath? Will I be saved because I keep the Sabbath? All right. How many say no? Raise your hand. Oh, that's good. That's a good number. Will I be lost because I choose not to keep the Sabbath? How many say yes? Raise your hand. Some of you don't want to raise your hand because you know that's a trick question. You're like, wait a second, wait a second, what happened? Here's the thing, it's the same. If I can't be saved because I keep it, how can I be lost because I don't keep it? Right? See, we're a people that say you can't be saved by works. We believe in righteousness by faith. That is very true, very true in print. It is not true in our practice. In our print, we say we're righteousness by faith, faith alone. We believe in Jesus' atoning sacrifice on Calvary. He atones for our sins. He alone justifies us. It's his righteousness, not ours. We say that in print, but we do not believe that in practice. In practice, we tell people there are certain things you have to do. This is what we'll say. Yes, salvation is free, but. You know what but does, right? That big but cancels out what you said before. It does. It's free, but. 
There's certain things that you need to do in order to show that you believe, right? Things that you need to do in order to show that you've accepted his grace. People who accept God's grace, they do certain things. And then before you know it, people start acting like they're saved by grace. Even in this chapter where we have the parable of the sheep and the goats, you read that parable and you say, Ooh, I want to be a sheep. I better go visit the homeless. I better go feed the hungry. I better go to the, to the prisons and visit those who need to be. I need to clothe those who are naked. Let me prove that I'm one of those sheep. When those in the parable who are the sheep are like, Lord, when did we do those things? I wasn't feeding a homeless person so I could be saved. I was feeding a homeless person because they were hungry. Hello? I wasn't doing this to prove that I love you. But Pastor Henderson, the Bible does say that. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Bible says that. Well, actually, not quite that. That's the way it's translated. But that's not what the Greek says. The Greek doesn't say, if you love me, to prove that you love me, then you will keep my commandments. That is a command. Keep them. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's not what it says in the Greek. In the Greek, it says this. It's actually prophetic. If you love me, this is what you will do. It's not a command. If you love me, this is what you will do. Not if you love me, do this. If you love me, this is what you'll do. The if is the love part, and this is the part that takes care of everything else. This is what we talked about in the, in the, in the second service. It's it, 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 if you remain in me and I remain in you, you will be fruitful. The if is if we remain. The if is if we love. The if is if we can, are connected. And if we are, all this other stuff, it just falls into place. We read this in 1 John chapter 3. Those who know the Lord will not sin. Isn't that what John says? Those who know me will not sin. If you continue to sin, all it proves is that you've never even known the Lord. You've never seen him. You've never known him. So when people struggle in their sins, we shouldn't tell them to stop sinning. Christ is coming soon. You better act right. If people continue to sin in their lives, all they need to do is get to know God better. Right? The if has always been on this knowledge of God, this intimacy with God, this connection with God, this, this ability to remain in God. It has never been putting things into practice like we're acting, like we're proving, like we have to work at this or else. The problem with the theology that we have to do these things in order is that it makes us fake and we're not authentic people. Being authentic is just, it's the worst thing ever. It's why God says he will spit us out. Why Jesus says he'll spit us out. He says you're neither hot, you're, not, you're neither cold. You're not cold and refreshing, you're not hot and soothing. I can't go to you on a hot summer's day and take a sip from your cup. I can't go to you on a, on a cold winter's eve and, and find soothing. I can't find any, you're, you're, you fake me out. You're not the real thing. No, but, but, but Lord, I'm fruitful. It's plastic fruit. <laughs> but it looks good and shiny. Yes, you're simply just whitewashed tombs. But inside, you're dead. You think you're rich. You think you're wealthy. You think, you, you, you think you're, you're, you're clothed. You think you're wise. You think you're, you, you can see, but you don't realize you're wretched. You're naked. You're blind. That's why God spits us out, because we're not real. We're not authentic. God would rather have somebody who's real. That's why he says, I'd rather you be hot and real, cold and real. But because you are neither, you're in between, you don't know what you are. You're a divided person. You're, you're whack. You're fake. You're salt without flavor. Even when Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 5, salt without flavor, it was, it's actually chemically impossible for salt to lose its savor. Do you know that? Chemically impossible for salt to lose its savor. Salt cannot be unsalted. You know that. You should know that. 
But there was this like flaky residue during Jesus' time that looked like salt that they would find. It looked like salt, but when they would taste it, they would go, oh, this salt has lost its saltiness. But it was never salt to begin with. It wasn't the real thing. So God has always wanted the real thing. So the problem with exact and precise Christians, exact and precise Adventists, is that we're willing to pull out a book and make little check marks in these boxes and say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. What else do I lack? And God is laughing, thinking, oh my goodness, you realize that's just the Ten Commandments. I have 200 more. (laughs) But I've done those as well. Good. I have another 200 I haven't even written. You guys have the Old Testament and the New Testament. I have an even newer testament. You haven't read that one yet. But, 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 but Lord, I've done Old Testament, New Testament. I, I, I've stayed away from the Apocrypha. I, I, I've, I've read the, all of the spirit of prophecy. I've read it all, all of it, everything. Okay, so what else do I lack? I even have more beyond the spirit of prophecy. You're not ready for the truth. Not all of it. Stop trying to do what you cannot do on your own. Stop trying to figure out what it is you have to do to be saved. There's nothing you can do to be saved. That's why he came to save you. These people are trying to get ready, and and the ones that don't take extra oil, take extra batteries, they're just, they're they're, they're making all these little check marks, and they're saying, let's not be wasteful. We don't want to, we don't want to break out this alabaster and just be wasteful. No, no, no. We just want to do enough. We just want to get in. You know, this world is not my home. We're just trying to get to heaven. That's that's all we talk about, and it sounds so self-serving. Think about this. This world is not my home. Yes, it is. You're going to live here. You will be living on the new earth. It's still your home. I'm just passing through. I'm just passing through. I'm just trying to get by. And you're willing to pass through and pass by people that need help, pass by people who are starving, pass by people who are naked, pass by people who are broken, who are depressed, who are suicidal, because it ain't your home. You're just passing through. So you don't mind polluting this world. You don't care. It's all going up in flames. You don't mind continuing to eat cows and eat chickens, even though you know you're not going to eat them on the new earth. Oh, I'm not talking about the health message. Oh, I know you thought I was, right? Because your argument with the health message is, well, you guys, you vegetarians, you eat stuff that's just as unhealthy. Those big freaks. (laughs) I'm not talking about the health message. I'm talking about being a humanitarian. How can you eat animals that are tortured to death? Well, they taste good. The Bible tells us that God has his eye on the sparrow. Not one sparrow falls, his eye is not on. Even when he spared Nineveh, he told Jonah because they had 120,000 innocent children as well as many animals. How can you continue to eat flesh of a creature that your God created with his own hands? Because he said we could? I guess I don't know. Stop it. The God who has his eye on the sparrow is the same God that has his eye on the chicken McNugget. (laughs) The same God that breathed life into you is the same God that breathed life into that cow. If you're not going to eat your dog and eat your cat, don't eat, don't eat the, the, the turkey. You look at some people in other countries like, oh, that's so gross, they eat dogs, they eat cats. They're looking at you, that's so gross, they eat cows. Stop it. Be better than that. I'm not telling you to do that in order to be saved because that's what exact Christians do. See, that's the problem. When you make the health message something that's like a check mark and you make it about, oh, are you holier than me? I'm not telling you to do any of this stuff in order for you to be saved. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves you. I'm telling you to do this to be a better person. Do it because it's better for the environment. Do you know how many trees we have to mow down just so we can raise cows to slaughter them? Do you know what having less trees does to our ozone layer? 
Do you know how many forests we have to take out in order to, again, grow more coffee because you can't wake up in the morning? I'm sorry, that's just whack. I'm sorry. Can I just say that to you? You can't wake up in the morning? Exercise. Go to bed on time. Well, I just, I, if I don't have my coffee, then what are you going to do on the new earth? Well, that's all right. We'll be changing a twinkling of an eye. Oh, come on. I don't understand this kind of stuff. Do you know how much money you waste at Starbucks? Do you know how many thousands of dollars you waste on stuff you don't even need that could go to somebody who actually needs to be fed? And you, you can't wake up in the morning. See, that's the kind of stuff that just gets on my nerves. You're willing to forsake one of the very first commandments that God gave us in the Garden of Eden, even before sin. Take care of the earth. There should be no pita or tree hugger out there that loves animals and the earth more than you. You love God. You're a Christian. You believe in the Creator. You should love His creation more than anyone else. I'm not telling you to do it in order to be saved or to prove that you're holier. I'm telling you to do it because you love Jesus. And you don't want to see animals suffer. Look at you. Some of you are still angry with me. I don't care. I'm leaving after this. <laughs> I'm telling you, on the new earth, you won't be able to eat the animals. You try to eat them, God has given permission to do kung fu on you. It won't happen. It's not going to happen. There will be no more dying. I mean, here's my thing. I want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we talked about the last service. God's will done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to start living out the new earth principles right now. Why not? If we're inviting people to be a part of the kingdom of God, we should be reflecting the kingdom of God right now. No one should look at us and say, those Christians, all they, care, all they care about is the Bible. All they care about is Jesus. But we don't care about anything else that's happening in the world. We have divorced ourselves from government. We get far away from it. We don't want to vote. We don't want to be a part of it because it's not my world. It is your world. You're not of this world, of the darkness part of it, but it is your world. You are a light to this world. You should love this world. You should care for this world. It should, it should cause you to have nightmares that people are, are in abusive relationships. You shouldn't be able to sleep well knowing that your neighbor is being beat by her husband or knowing that children are being abused by their parents. You need to do something about this, not because you want to be saved, but because people need help. When you become this exact, precise Christian, all you're worried about is checking boxes. All God said was for me to visit somebody in prison. He never said I needed to give them a box of Pampers. He never said that. that that's nowhere in the Bible. Someone's going to try to check me at the door and tell me, uh, Pastor Henderson, God did allow after the flood. Do you know how many things that God allowed that weren't good for us? And he only allowed it because we're stubborn? And you want to actually use that as like one of your doctrines? When God allowed eating the flesh, do you know they went from living 950 years, almost 1,000 years, and it was cut in half after he allowed them to eat flesh? They went from like 1,000 to 500, the next generation. And thank you, God, for allowing that. Thank you. You're so wonderful, God. God allowed divorce. He hates it, but he allowed it. Wasn't good. God allowed there to be a king in Israel. He told them they shouldn't have a king because this is what the king would do. And every king that God allowed really was a bad king. Saul, David, Solomon, all bad kings. I'm sorry. I'll tell David to his face, and I'll for sure tell Solomon to his face. All bad kings. Best choices, bad kings. Because they never should have been in the position of being a king, right? There's a lot of things that God allows that aren't good. So stop being this exact Christian, this precise Christian that simply says, I just want to get by. I just want to do the bare minimum. Do what you're able to do. What is the opportunity presents itself. Not what do I have to do, but Lord, what can I do? What do I get to do? Lord, what else do you have for me to busy my hands? I'm not trying to get to heaven. I want to bring heaven here. So the five who were wise, they, they have a different slant. 
They're not trying to be precise. They say this, you know what? It's possible the bridegroom may tarry. It's possible the bridegroom may not come at the destruction of Jerusalem. It's possible the bridegroom may not come in my lifetime. It is very possible. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to plan for whatever. I'm just going to make sure that I have extra. I know we plan to feed a thousand people, but there may be a thousand and two that show up. So you know what? I just want to plan for extra. I'd rather there be leftovers. That's why I love the stories of Jesus feeding the 5,000 and the 4,000 families. He still had leftovers because God doesn't do anything just barely making it. When Christ died on Calvary, he didn't die just for the righteous. He didn't die for those who would just love him. He didn't die for those who would just simply ask for forgiveness. He died for all of us. He died for his enemies. He died for the ungodly. He died for the unrighteous. Jesus died so much to cover everyone's sin that he says where sin abounds, grace that much more abounds. Grace has covered us even to the utmost. Jesus has never done anything precisely. He always lavishes us. It's always overflowing. And people who are in relationship with him, it's just how they are. So you'll be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they go, oh, king, like, bro, don't get it twisted. Our God can save us, and he will save us, but if he chooses not to save us. Oh, I love That's my favorite part, right? Our God can and will, but if he chooses not to, oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, let it be known that we still won't bow down. If he chooses not to be faithful to us by rescuing us from your hand, just know this, that will not change our faithfulness to him. We're just so tight with our God. We love him so much that we don't even want to fake like we're tying up our laces just to kind of make it seem like we bow down. We're, we know there are other Israelites that are bowing down or not being destroyed by God right now. We know that we could probably bow down and his grace would still cover us. But let it be no king that we're so in love with Jesus that we don't want to change any part of our intimate relationship and connection with him. So let it be known. Even if he doesn't save us, we still cool. Daniel was the same way. They said, if you pray, you're in the lion's den. Dan's like, look it, I know the Bible tells me to pray in a closet, but this is how I pray. Three times a day, in front of my window, this is how I get down. And you can threaten me, but I would rather die than change any part of my relationship with my God. And here's the thing. Daniel would have still been God's friend if he closed the windows. Daniel could have gone into a closet and God would have said, I understand that, Dan. They're tripping. Just give it 30 days and we can do this publicly again. Right? He, God would have still been cool with it. And Daniel's like, I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. I just can't. I'm so in love with you. I will shout it from the mountaintops. Because those people that are not focused on just simply getting by and getting to heaven, they don't care about that stuff. You see, when you're in a relationship with Jesus, heaven is the last thing that's motivating you. When you're in a relationship with Jesus, the only thing that motivates you is staying in connection with him. What did David say? I'd rather be a doorkeeper where? And the house of the Lord, then where? Dwell among the, the tents of the, the wicked, the wealthy, the rich. He, what he's basically saying, I'd rather be a house fly in God's house than to be in some mansion. For people who love Jesus, streets of gold mean nothing. Mansions mean nothing. Living forever means nothing. Flying like an angel means nothing. We're not in it for heaven. We're in it for one another. We're not in it for heaven and living forever. We're in it for Jesus. We're in it for something greater. The Bible says that the bridegroom tarries. All of them fall asleep. Peter, Paul, John, all fall asleep. James, Bartholomew, Nathan, all fall asleep. Everyone falls asleep. Ellen White falls asleep. Martin Luther 
falls asleep. Everyone fell asleep. No sin in that. The bridegroom tarried, they fell asleep. But they were all awakened by behold, the bridegroom cometh. The five wise ones wake up, the five foolish ones wake up, they get the sleep out of their eyes. They all notice their fire is going out. It's the five foolish ones. They put extra batteries in, in, their, in their flashlight, and it's as bright as it can be. Their light isn't going out. The five foolish ones see their, 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 their flame flickering, and they say, oh, wait a second. We, we need some extra oil. We need some, can we have some of yours? They say, oh, if I give you, I give you one of my batteries, I, I won't be able to power my flashlight. Why don't you go? There's a local Walmart down the street, open 24 hours, go and buy some, and then come back to the party. And you don't want to know what these exact, precise Christians do? They go to Walmart. Because they couldn't show up without flashlights. They couldn't show up without a flame that was burning bright. So they want to go to the store and get that oil so they can come back and say, look at us. See, you thought we were unprepared. Come on, bridegroom. You know we were going to bring it. You thought we weren't going to keep the Sabbath. Come on now. You know how we do it. You thought we weren't going to show up for vacation Bible school? Come on, Lord, you know we know how to do this. We knew you were coming. We wanted to make sure we were ready. We got you. My mom used to scare us saying, you know what? If you're listening to secular music and Jesus comes, you are going to be lost. <laughs> right? They used to terrify you because you wouldn't be able to pray that, that, that one glorious saving prayer. Lord, forgive me of my sins. Ah! Because if you don't get that out, you're dead. You know that, right? There's, there's no salvation for you. If, you don't be, if you're not able to say, Lord, forgive you of your sins, and you die, then there's just no grace for you. That's what we've always taught, right? Can I just say something? He forgave you before you asked. Can I just say that? Can I just say that? When he went to Calvary, that was a big, I forgive you, even for those who never asked for it. Just so you know. The Bible says that he justified everyone, even the ungodly, all of us. So just, just to let you know. So my mom used to kind of scare us. And my mom walked into my room one day, and I had a bunch of posters on my wall of, um, well, you know, I can say this, but, you know, it's, some of you are not going to like me afterwards. But Prince. I was a big-time Prince fan. It was the 80s. There was a lot of Prince fans. And so she looked on the wall, and she'd see Prince and his lace and everything, and she'd say, look at that filth. Think you're going to be saved if Jesus were to come today? So I looked at it. I was like, huh. I remember reading some of the early writings, Ellen White's, one of her first books, early writings, and she had this incredible quote about heaven. And I was like, I just want to be saved. And so I took Prince down. I was like, I don't. Purple rain, it's all coming down. It's just all. When doves cry, everybody's crying in this room. We're just pulling it down. No more Prince, right? It's just really. I wanted to be saved. Right? So I, I grew up in that culture, right? If Jesus is coming soon, you got to get ready. You got to get ready, right? We're talking about that. I hear this all the time. Pastor, we need to preach more last day message, right? I was like, what is the last, really, what is the last day message? What is it? Oh, we got to get ready. Well, what does that mean to get ready? Well, there's just things we're doing that we need to get rid of in our lives. Or when Jesus comes, we're just not going to be. Let me tell you something. Christ could tell you that he's going to be here next week and you still wouldn't be ready. He could tell you he's coming a year from now and you still wouldn't be ready. Because a date isn't going to change anything. That's why he didn't give you a date. That kind of mentality is, again, like my mom. My mom always wanted to give the impression that we, she kept a clean home, always. I love my mom, by the way, I know she, and she knows I talk like this, so we're good. <laughs> my mom is wonderful. She really is. She's like, she's like the closest thing to Jesus. I mean, honestly, I could believe in a loving God because of my mom. I really could. I could believe in this loving father because I just had this amazing mom. And so, but she always wanted to you know, give this impression she kept the cleanest house, the cleanest house, right? So before the advent of cell phones, when people showed up unannounced, like it was really unannounced, right? They just rang the doorbell. And so my Auntie Linda shows up, rings the doorbell. My mom looks out the people. She's like, boys, 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 right? So we had to drill down. We knew exactly what to do. We ran through the house. We started closing all the doors. We, we would go into the living room, pick up little things off the, off the carpet to make it look like it was vacuumed. We'd run into the kitchen with a pillowcase, put the dirty dishes in the pillowcase, tie up the pillowcase, and throw it in the closet. 
by the time my auntie came into the house, that house looked good. My auntie Linda rolled up in there. She said, ooh, girl. Girl, you sure do keep a clean house. My mom was like, girl, you know me. Auntie Linda's like, hi, boys, how you doing? (laughs) And it looked like we were ready. It looked like we were prepared. But come on, we weren't ready, right? And this is how we approach the second coming. Let's run to the store really quick. We got oil. Okay, knock on the door. Hey, Jesus, open up. We're ready. We got it. That was so close. I know. We just made it. And this is what the bridegroom says. I cannot let you in, for I do not know you. But Lord, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23, but Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not cast out demons in your name? And did we not perform many miracles in your name? Did we not? We were a part of your remnant people. We were a part of your church. And we did this. We had enough faith to do these wonderful things in your behalf and for your church and for your kingdom. Did we not do? Did we not do? Did we not do? And God says, that's the problem. You thought it was something that you do. You clearly don't know me. Because if you knew me, you would know it's not what you did, but what I did. But we we didn't want to come here without the oil. You don't get it, Mimi. We wanted it. Yeah, I know. You wanted to look good. I get it. I was going to make you look good. I had extra oil here for you. I planned accordingly for you. I had a robe for you to wear at this wedding feast. That's why I invited everyone. But you don't trust me. You still see me like one of those pagan gods who rewards you for doing good and punishes you for doing evil. I'm not Zeus. I'm not Ares. I am like no other God. Come to me, those who have sinned, those who have fallen short, Isaiah 55, verse 7. Those with iniquity, come to me, and I will freely pardon you. I will freely forgive you, for my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways and thoughts above yours. I'm not like you. But we just thought because I'm not like you. You don't know me. You don't know me. Why were the five foolish virgins not allowed into the house? Was it because they were unprepared? Is that what the Bible says? Was it because they didn't have enough good works, enough good fruits, enough light? They weren't allowed in for one reason. They were not known, which implies they did not know him. For this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Church family, it is not what you know, but who you know. All of your doctrines, all of our doctrines, all of the commandments are only there to do one thing, help us to know Him. If we, after reading the doctrine of the sanctuary or the Sabbath or or the Trinity or salvation, if we, after reading all this stuff, if we don't 
know God more, then we're not reading it the right way. We're not applying it the right way. The only reason why you read the Word of God is to know the truth. And the truth are not a set of ideals. The truth is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. When Jesus opened up the Bible, we read this already, when he opened up the Scriptures in Luke 24, he showed them from Moses all the way through the Psalms and the prophets who he was. And that's why we read, to know Jesus. Because this is what I believe. If Adam and Eve knew God the way they should have, they wouldn't have taken the fruit. Right? When the serpent told them, hey, God doesn't want you to eat this because he knows that your eyes are going to be open and you're going to know the truth and you're going to really know him and you're going to be like him and all that kind of stuff. And God's a, God's a hater. God power trips. They'd have been like, serpent, you must be tripping. We know God. We're already like him. He created us in his image. Well, you girl, your eyes are going to be open. You're gonna say, My eyes are wide open right now and I see you. Okay? I've seen him and I've seen you, and I'm telling you right now, I know him and I don't want to know you. When you know who God is, you trust him. And when you trust him, this is my opinion, sin begins to fall away from your life. We sin because we don't trust God, right? Happy people don't get high. You know that, right? They don't get wasted either. They don't need a buzz. They're already buzzing. You know what I'm talking about? That's happy people. So Christ offers us something that's better than what the world can give us. What the world can give us is a high. What the world can give us is a painkiller. And that painkiller feels good. Oh, great, I'm not feeling any pain right now. Oh, my goodness, I feel so good, girl. I feel so good right now. Oh, bro, I feel so good right now because I was hurting so bad. But painkillers eventually wear off. Painkillers do not heal you. So God says, I want to get rid of the pain as well. I'm with you on this, but I want to do it where it's permanent. I want to heal you. It's a process. Let me do it right. What God has to offer is better than what the world has to offer. The world will give us highs, really strong highs, but God gives us something we never come down from. He gives us water that if we drink it, we will never thirst again. That's good stuff. In fact, he does it this way. I will give you water that will become a wellspring inside of you. Oh, that's some good stuff. That's, that's John chapter 4. A wellspring inside of you. In other words, you won't even have to come to a well in order to quench your thirst. You won't even have to come to church in order to... The well will be inside of you, and it will spring up into eternal life. God wants to give you something. He wants to put His Spirit inside of you. God of heaven wants to be inside of you Father, may they be one as you and I are one. I in them and you and me so that the world may know that you love them as much as you have loved me. That's, that's John 17. It's a powerful prayer. God is giving you something better. Do you trust him? This entire conversation from Thursday to now is God wanting to win your trust and say, you don't have to be afraid of me. I've come to give you light. And the light is not to scare you. The light is to make your life better. The light is to make this world a better place. The light is to make you happy. You already you have everything you need in order to be happy. You just don't know it. But the light will help you see that. God is the inventor of happiness. Trust him. I've made God sound so good to you that some of you are saying probably, but pastor, you know, there is a bad part in earth's history and you're trying to avoid it. But these sinners in this church need to know that if they don't get their life together, they're going to be cast out into the eternal darkness and stuff like that. But let me share something with you that you didn't know. In the end, everybody gets what they want. Everybody. There is no eternal burning forever. In fact, I don't even believe Scripture teaches that people are burned alive. That's just, that's, my Bible never tells me that. Every single illustration that God has ever used in Scripture has death being destroyed in the fire. It's very symbolic, highly symbolic. In Revelation 20, death, the world of the dead, Hades, hell, all cast into the fire. 
And John tells us the lake of fire is symbolic. It is the second death. It represents the second death. Ellen White says it several times in some of her articles. I don't even have the time to go there with you. Isaiah 66 talks about the worms that do not die and the unquenchable fire. But the bodies are dead, not alive. They're dead. The weeds are cut off, then bundled up and thrown into the fire. The branches that choose not to remain in God, they wither away. That's how they die. They wither away, then they're thrown into the fire. Fire is never used to torture or to kill. Fire is used to purify and to cleanse. God doesn't need to torture anybody in the end because they don't love him. He's not petty like that. Oh, but pastor, they have to get what they deserve. Can you imagine Jesus crucifying somebody because they crucified him? Gabriel, give me the hammer and the nails. You're going to get it. Can you imagine that? It's sick. Can you imagine God going on a drive-by and shooting somebody because some gang member did a drive-by and they didn't ask for forgiveness, so Christ is going to be like, now I'm going I'm to have to shoot you? You think God's that petty because you threw a rock at him, he's going to pick a boulder and throw it at you? Jesus died for all those sins. They don't need to pay for them anymore. There's no double payment. Christ died for the sins of Hitler. Hitler doesn't have to die because he sinned. Christ already died for him. Pilate as well. Nero as well. You as well. In the end, there is not a punishment. In the end, there is a choice. When Christ comes again, there are those that see him, smile, and are happy, and are caught up to meet him. And then there are those that see him and say, that's Godzilla. And we say, no, it's not. Look at the smile. That's not a smile. It is a smile. Look at him. Don't you know him? No. There are those at the end that choose death over life. The Bible says they pray for the rocks to do what? The gnashing of teeth, the torturous part of it is not fire. It's sin. Sister White says in Desire of Ages that what Christ felt on the cross, what he died from, was not the nails. It wasn't the pain of the nails. It wasn't the pain of the crown of thorns. It wasn't being stretched out. She said he died from the sense of awful separation from the Father. She, she said he felt that it was going to be forever, that he couldn't see past the portal of the tomb. She says what Jesus felt on the cross is exactly what the lost sinner will feel in the end. That's hell. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. It is to be forever separated from God. That's the strange act because even Satan at this point isn't completely separated from God. He still breathes because God's spirit is still inside of him. I know that's hard to believe, but it's true. But one day, God will finally respect the decision of Lucifer when he decided to walk out of heaven. He'll say, okay, I'll finally let you have your way. I'll leave you alone forever. Sister White says that if Satan were allowed to live in heaven today in great controversy, she says it would be a place of supreme torture. She says in Steps to Christ, the second chapter, if the lost, if the wicked were permitted to live in heaven, she said it would be a place of torture. If God wanted to torture the wicked, where would he send them? To heaven. But they don't want to go to heaven because the Bible says his very presence is a consuming fire. They don't want it. It's hell to them. Do they want to live on their own planet? How would that be? Live on your own planet where there's no love, no peace, no joy. You want to live there? Anybody? Anybody? Any takers? But you can drink as much as you want. Oh, that'd be so awesome. And my liver would explode, but I wouldn't die from it. Oh, yeah. You can smoke as much weed as you want on, that other, on this other earth that God creates for the wicked. It'd be awesome. Man, your brain cells would just explode. You would turn into like a vegetable, a rock for the rest of life. Man, that'd be so awesome, dude. And then you would live in fear of your neighbors trying to kill you, but you really never die from them trying to kill you. You just suffer forever and ever because God has given you the gift of eternal life. Isn't he a good God? You see, here's the reality. It would be hell to live in heaven. It'd be hell to not live in heaven. There's only one thing that will give them peace, and that's what they cry out for, and that is death. So in the end, we all get eternal peace. Some will have eternal peace by being in death eternally, never waking up again, and some will have eternal peace by living in the kingdom of God forever. God doesn't lose his temper in the end. We're the ones that lost our temper. 
Sister White even says in great controversy that the wicked turn on each other. They turn on the devil. Sin implodes. It always implodes. God doesn't have to push a button. The wages of sin is death. It is God in his mercy that finally puts a boundary to sin and says, no more. I'll let you wither away. You don't want to remain in me? Fine. Fine. But just know this. Hitler, know this. Stephen, know this. Susan, know this. There is no sin that could have separated you from me. I love you. Even death will not separate you from my love. I will love you even in this moment. I love you so much and I respect you so much that I'm going to do something that is so painful for me. It is just as painful as Calvary. I'm going to let you go forever. And I'm going to miss you. But I respect you. And I know you're not happy living with me. Lucifer, you're my boy and I love you, man. I still love you to this day. I'll never stop loving you but I know you don't trust me and I know you don't know me and I know you don't want to live with me, so I'm going to give you what you ask for. I'll leave you alone forever. I'll leave you alone forever. This is the light. And this is how it occupies darkness. God wants to reveal who he is to you. Don't you want that light? It's so good. Don't you want to know him? It's so good. Sister White paints this picture in the end when we're all gathered around the sea of glass. She says we'll be celebrating, having a good time. I imagine Adventists will be freed up to move a little bit. That's how you're going to know the Adventists from everybody else, right? We're going to be just like this. I'm not moving. <laughs> I will not fall into sin, Lord. It will not, it will not rear its ugly head on the new earth. I'm not moving, right? <clears throat> we'll, we'll finally begin to just kind of feel like this release, this joy, this celebration, this, dare I may say, this, this dancing, this, 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 this will be amazing celebration. And, and she says that, but, that, but we'll notice two figures that stand just a little bit taller than everybody else. And as we look closer, we'll see one is the first Adam and the other is the second Adam. And they begin to make their way towards each other. Oh, man. We begin to make room on the sea of glass. Oh, look what's about to happen. They haven't seen each other in years. Adam sees Jesus. Jesus sees Adam, and he stretches out his hands as well. And then Adam notices the nail marks. He falls to his knees. What have I done? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Oh, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I just, I'm so sorry. I didn't trust you. I'm so sorry. I just, I didn't know you like I should have. I'm so he says, no, 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 no crying. There's no crying in heaven. Come on, there's a prophecy about that. No crying. Come on, no, come on, come on. I want to show you something. No, I just, I don't deserve to be. Come on, come on, come on. I want to show you something. She says that Jesus takes him to the tree of life. <sighs> don't you feel that, man? He takes Adam to the tree of life and says, there you go. Go for it. Adam has an issue with picking fruit right now, so, you know, he's just <laughs> making sure there's no trick, right? There's no trick. <laughs> so she says that Jesus picks the fruit for him and gives it to Adam and says, now Live forever. Isn't he a God that's worth trusting? He loves you more than life itself. He could not live in heaven without you. This is not the message of cheap salvation because it's the most expensive salvation this universe has ever known. Because it cost him his life. 
and he paid for you and he has the receipt in his hands to prove it, you are worth every drop. And he's coming again. And he doesn't want you to be afraid because he's not Godzilla. He's your friend. He's your savior. And he's going to make good on his promise. He's going to make it up to you. You live in a world that's unfair, and he knows it. That's why he went to the tree. That's why he went to Calvary. And he still has more in store for you. Just trust him. Young people, if your parents or your teachers or your pastors have given you a wrong impression of who God is, forgive them. They're learning. They're still growing as well, just as you are. But make no excuses. Don't say the church has too many rules. Don't say your parents, they've they blinded you. No excuses. You get to know them for yourself. And parents, I know how you were raised. I know. I know what you were taught by your grandparents, and they were good people, and they shared with you what they knew, but there's still so much more to learn that is so beautiful. And Paul says that right now we see through a glass darkly, but one day we will see him as he is. And I'm saying continue to look past the glass darkly. Look, God is getting clearer and clearer the closer it comes to the end of time. It's an unfolding of revelation, an unfolding of truth. So let us know him for who he is. And may that be what eternal life is for us. May we answer the prayer of Jesus. Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's make this world a better place. If Nineveh can pray, and say, perhaps God may not destroy us. If Nineveh can pray that, then we should be able to pray that. You know, I remember what those Revelation and Daniel seminars say. But you know, Lord, what if? What if we continue to humble ourselves and pray? Just maybe it won't end up the way we heard it would. Maybe the world comes to an end because it gets better and not worse. And even if it doesn't get better, may it be that that's what our attempt is. That's what we're busy doing, making it a better place. You willing to do that, church family? Amen. If you are, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as we pray. <clears throat> not asking you to stand if you want to be saved. No, no, no. We're not doing that anymore. I'm not asking you to stand if you want to be saved. We know that it is Christ or Christ alone that saves us. And if you're lost, it won't be because of your sins. It'll be simply because you won't be happy. And God loves you too much to have you live in eternal unhappiness. You know that, right? Your sins won't cost you heaven because Christ already prayed for your sins. Amen? It's a good word. You're standing because you're saying right now, Lord, I want to be a part of making this world a better place. I know what I've heard, I know what I've understood in prophecy, but I want to be just like Nineveh right now. Perhaps Jesus' prayer can come true. Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Perhaps the keys that he has given me, that he gave to Peter and he gave to his church, perhaps we can trust him to the point where the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Perhaps, Lord, as you have promised, the light is greater than the darkness. Let us pray. Father. Thank you so much for this time that we've had to spend in your word. Father, I've absolutely enjoyed these conversations, and I believe that you are doing something special. I don't believe that this theme came about just by happenstance, that your spirit made a choice, and I believe people were led for us to talk about this today, this weekend. Father, I pray for this church, Forest Lake, that, that being in this bubble, Father, I know what Adventist ghettos look like. I know what they feel like. I grew up in Loma Linda. You know that. But we need to get outside the bubble. If it's the time of trouble, bring it on. If the world is going to turn up the heat, we got something even hotter. We have you, Jesus. And we believe that if you are lifted up, that you will not draw some, you will not draw few, you will draw every person. So we want to get outside of our bubble. We want to find out what it takes to, to, to meet the needs of this community. We want to be committed not to do just traditional evangelism, but, Father, do things that, Father, your messenger told us to do. Christ's method alone. 
we're willing to trust in those methods that reach people where they are. And then we'll print some books and give it to them. But first, we're going to feed them. First, we're going to clothe them. First, we're going to take care of this world. First, we're going to be responsible to this world. First, we're going to be responsible to these precious animals that you told us to take care of. We're going to be responsible to children who are orphans and people who are widows. Father, we're going to look after the, the, the divorcees, and we're going to help build and strengthen marriages. We're not going to do this just with words, but we'll do it with our wallets. We'll do it with our hands. We'll do it with our feet. Father, our prayers will be nonverbal from this point on. You will know what we're praying because you're going to see us pray in our actions. Father, we are committed to answering the prayer. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are choosing today to know you and to bring heaven here on earth. We say these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Forest Lake, God bless you. Thank you so much for having me. I've loved my time with you. I look forward to spending time with you maybe down the road. And if not here on the earth, on this side of eternity, on the new earth. God bless you.